This is Annabelle Steele, and you're listening to the Hayseed Scholar from Professor Brent Steele. You may call him Doctor. I just call him Dad. Here's my Uncle Kyle to introduce the show. Recording in studios from Utah to the UK and anywhere in between, you never know where Professor Brent Jameson Steele will be dropping knowledge and bringing you the best guest the universe has to offer. This is the Hayseed Scholar with Mr. Worldwide, my brother, Dr. Brent Jameson Steele. I like that one. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Hayseed Scholar podcast. I'm Brent Steele. Thanks so much for listening. It's been a while uh, since I did my last episode last fall with Cameron Tees, and a lot has happened since then um, with the pandemic and shutting everything down. And I'm sure that you're all just as dislocated as I have been uh, over the last couple of months with the COVID-19 pandemic. Originally, the idea was that I was going to take uh, some trips in April, May, and June and interview a whole slew of guests during those trips to conferences and workshops. I was going to go in April to LA to the Western Political Science Association meeting and do at least one interview there. In May, I was going to Finland and then to the UK, and I was going to do at least four, maybe even five interviews during that period of time. And then I was going to go back to the UK in June for the BISA conference and maybe do another interview there. And then in July, I was going to go to the OCIS in Sid, uh, excuse me, in Canberra, uh, Australia, and do a couple more interviews there. Unfortunately, all of those have been canceled. Um, and so uh, due to the pandemic, so I've had to reconfigure how I do my interviews. And so one of the individuals I was planning to interview was Aisha Zarakal. And so I did it, uh, the interview with her, uh, just the other day from my front porch over Zoom. Uh, she lives in Cambridge uh, with her family. She's at the University of Cambridge, and I'm here in Salt Lake City. And so I did uh, an interview over Zoom, and the audio quality is actually pretty good, I think, uh, for this. Um, it's not as good as when I interview with my microphone uh, that I have acquired and used for the last few episodes, but I think it's okay. I also put myself on mute um, when she was answering my questions and talking a little bit, and so I think that probably was a good thing, and that's going to be something that maybe I need to do even when I do these interviews in person. Um, so I've known Aisha for at 12 years. I think 2008, the ISA Northeast, which we talk about in this conversation here was the first time that we met. She presented a paper for a panel that I was a discussant on. And ever since then, we've become really good friends. We've collaborated a lot, seen one another at many workshops, uh, quite a few conferences, and we always try to touch base. She's an incredibly accomplished scholar. We talk about her growing up in Turkey uh, her decision to go to college at Middlebury in Vermont, her decision uh, to go to graduate school at the University of Wisconsin, and then her first tenure track position at Washington and Lee, and then her eventual uh, journey that took her to the University of Cambridge, where she is today. She is 
one of the most accomplished scholars I've ever met. I'm actually jealous of not only how brilliant she is, but also uh, how well she writes. Um, and we get a little bit into discussing uh, her writing uh, technique, techniques and um, strategies. And we talk about her uh, famous and, and uh, path-breaking book, After Defeat, which was her first book that she published. And then we also talk a little bit about the prequel to that that she's working on now called Before Defeat. And we talk about the typical sorts of things that this podcast has been known to cover. And it was really just an enjoyable chat with Aisha, Professor Zarakal. Um, and about the only drawback is that I just sometimes these Zoom discussions and meetings um, are great because we get to connect with people, even though we're distant from them, but it also makes you miss them even more so. Um, so it's a little bit bit bittersweet, uh, doing these interviews, but it's better than nothing. And, um, it also makes me realize, um, how much I took for granted (laughs) over the years, uh, and having all these wonderful friends and how I'm not going to take that for granted once the uh, pandemic is over and we hopefully, um, can get back to, if not, a normal, perhaps a new normal of uh, meeting up with our friends and, and meeting new ones. All right, everyone. So I hope you enjoy this. This is my interview with uh, Aisha Zarakal, the Hayseed Scholar podcast. Cheers. Hope you enjoy. Um, okay. Well, this is great. Thanks so much uh, for making time uh, for us today. So... In the beginning, you were growing up in Turkey. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what was that like? It was good, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know any difference. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, it was good. I think I had a good childhood. I mean, I was born in Ankara, but uh, when I was in primary school, my parents moved to Istanbul and I really liked growing up in Istanbul. I, uh, it's it's still a city I, you know, I love. Uh, so I was very lucky, I think, in that. Yeah. Um, what what kind of school did you go to? Like, how would like for 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 like us idiot Americans or whatever? Is it was it like a public school? What's the school system like for like primary school? I I went to after uh, starting in sixth grade. I went to a private school, uh, and uh, at the time you you would take a national exam. Uh, in the in, in fifth grade, and then you would get placed. Uh, there was one for private schools, and then there was one for um, public schools that were competitive, like I guess magnet schools in the US. Um, so after that exam, I earned a spot uh, in this private school uh, in Istanbul called Üsküdar American Academy, which at the time was all girls. Uh, so from sixth grade to twelfth grade, I, I went to that school. Yes, uh, went which all girl, you went to an all girls school. Yes, I school. went to an all girls school. Yes, yeah. I mean, after two years after I started, they started admitting boys. So there were boys when I was there, but they were younger, so they didn't count. You know, so <laughs> yes. Wait, so yeah. you were probably identified as a pretty like smart kid when you were growing up then or? Yes. I mean, um, 
So definitely in primary school, uh, you know, I, I was considered one of the people who could win a, you know, my teacher, I think, considered me as a potential uh, spot earner in one of these desirable schools. Uh, and then, in you know, in junior high, I wasn't, you know, everybody was good. So I wasn't, you know, particularly aware of, you know, uh, where I was placed. And of course, you know, being a teenager, you're kind of like, la la. And then... Um, and then I think it was in ninth or 10th grade, uh, I got a good average that year with GPA and somebody said, ah, you know, with this GPA, you can go to, uh, the U S like if you keep it up, uh, for college. And then I was like, really? Okay. Then I, I, you know, I will take this seriously. So then after that point, the point, my focus became, because this was an American school that was taught, uh, you know, half of our teachers were American and some subjects were in. Uh, well, American, um, in English, <laughs> American English. Uh, yeah, uh, some subjects like math, science, they were taught in English. Uh, and the school had a setup, like you could take the SATs, you know. So, um, yeah, I think starting in 10th grade, I became very focused on this idea of trying to go to the U.S. for college. Was that like a common um a, a common option for like you know more sort of uh talented uh uh common it wasn't common like now it's very common like because i'm on the board of the school now and i think now like i think 80 90 percent of the students go to the u.s or like europe or something that's partly because the political situation you know in turkey is bad i mean not that it was great in the 90s either but you know now it's particularly bad uh so uh, and also, also, I think institutionally, schools are better set up for that. This is, uh, when, when I went, especially because my school was an all-girls school, it, like, we knew it was a possibility, but most people didn't do it. Um, most people would want to go for master's, but not for university. But still, the, you know, the school did give out, you know, you, you could take the SATs, uh, you know, one weekend. You know, so the, the and you had like a, an advisor like who would talk to you about like if you want to go to college in the US you know this is what you need to do so some of the institutional features were there it's just most people weren't taking advantage of it I would say from my graduating class maybe 10% uh, at most went to the US had you been to the US before you actually got there for (laughs) Middlebury I hadn't I hadn't uh, yeah actually my um, guidance counselor said you know when I said you know because I had Barron's top 50 colleges I think I told you this story before uh so I made a list of colleges that sounded good and I don't know some something about the way Middlebury was oh also I had signed up you know you probably remember this like if you like signed up you would get like admissions brochures I don't know if they still do that they probably don't do it uh, anymore so and of course like in Turkey like mail is very unreliable people didn't use it but it was very exciting to get these like glossy, like American style brochures. And I think the Middlebury brochure was also nice. Uh, so, so anyway, it was on, on my list of 10 colleges that I was going to apply to. Uh, and the guidance counselor said, do you really want to go there? Like, you know, it's, there are more cows in Vermont than there are people. Like, it will be a big shock to you coming from Istanbul. And I was like, haha, like, you know, of course I can handle it. But, <laughs> but you know, then I went there and I was like, oh my God, it's so small. Uh, I mean, then I got used to it. But I, I think he was right to warn me. But I, I think I was also, uh, thank God, like, you know, I didn't listen to him because it turned out, it, you know, 
turned out great, you know, eventually. Yeah. But what um, did, did you, I mean, like what percentage of kids at Middlebury were like international students like you? Uh, you think? 10%, I would say, because Middlebury was a very international school where, mm-hmm. uh, like, uh, it was one of the few places that had uh, need blind admissions, regardless of where you came from. Uh, whereas most universities and colleges would have financial aid for Americans, but not, you know, people, international students. So, because of that, Middlebury was very, very international, uh, despite being like, I mean, it's a school of 2,000 students, and it's everybody lives on campus. So, and it's like, you know, it's in Vermont. So you you would not necessarily expect it to be international, but it was. Um, and also all those language programs. Middlebury has these like summer language schools. Yeah, so it's like a very international place. You know, did that make the transition <laughs> to living in the United States a little bit easier? Do you think? Or yeah, I think so. Yeah, like my first year. Almost all of my friends were international students. Everybody complaining about like you know, uh, you know, living in like rural Vermont. You know, griping about that. You know, of course, you know, eighteen-year-olds. You know, they don't know. Uh, but then, and of course, some people left at the end of the first year. It's a big adjustment, I think. For most international students, come from like the big cities of their <laughs> their uh, you know country. Uh, so I think it's not so much. You know, Middlebury is just the urban-rural transition is difficult. Uh, but then, you know, once you settle in and come to appreciate the place, I think most people were, were really happy. Um, I mean, there was a great sense of um, community, you know. And what they say about, like, you know, conversations con- continuing, like, in dorms, like, that's not just, like, in the brochures. It's, like, true. It's really that kind of place. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, I... I started to learn how to ski. Not that, you know, I'm not really good at it, but still that like gave, <laughs> you know, it makes you fit, uh, fit better because the school has its own, like Middlebury has its own ski slopes. Uh, and there was like this, what was called J term, January term, where you take one class and everybody goes skiing in the afternoon. So, you know, t- just participating in those types of activities or like driving to Montreal. I don't know. It's like actually like a really fun place once you accept it for. Yeah. And if you drive to Montreal, the drinking age is 18 up there, right? Isn't that? Yeah, Yeah, it it was. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not implying that's why you went there. I'm just saying that that's, I've heard that's part of the attraction for some 19 and 20 year olds. Yes. Yeah. And also (laughs) just like a big city, you know? So it was like, yeah, we would either drive to, Sometimes we would drive to Burlington, uh, to Denny's, <laughs> as international students, because that, like, that was one of the few places that was open 24 hours. Like, one of our big complaints, I remember, was that like, nothing was open after, like, 8 p.m. <laughs> so, like, yeah, we would go to Denny's just to feel like we were out, you know, <laughs> about. <laughs> Denny's as the location for cosmopolitan uh, yes. outlets. Um, <laughs> How did you, did you know what your major was going to be when you went to, like, before you even went to Middlebury? Or did you have to kind of figure it out after a couple of years? No, I didn't know. That's part of the reason I, I want to go to the U.S. Because I didn't know if I liked, uh, like, STEM subjects more or um, social sciences or humanities. Like, in high school, I did both uh, Model United Nations. So I was, like, really into, like, politics. 
uh, and international staff. Uh, but I also was on the math team. And I was really interested also in archaeology. Um, so I didn't know. And part of the reason I didn't like the Turkish system was you would take an exam, like again, a national exam, and it would be placed not just in a university, but in a major. Uh, and it was very difficult to change. So I want to go to the US, both because I wanted to like travel and see the world, but also because the system gave you the flexibility to pick a major after shopping around. So I think first year, I mean, and Middlebury had this thing where you had to take something from each, like there were these subject areas and you had to do one of each. Um, and yeah, so my first year I was very undecided. But, and I thought I might uh, uh, major in physics, but then uh, the, the person who was teaching it, I mean, this is like, this shows you how like important like professors are. Like the person who was teaching it would keep taking us to baseball fields and uh, like have us calculate like the trajectory of like some like baseball. And I didn't know anything about baseball. I hated being out, you know, like in the, in the cold. So I was like, okay, I'm going to drop this. <laughs> this class uh yeah and, uh, so you were you were like the rare student that didn't like going to the baseball field as part of your class you were like i'm done with this because uh, i i would have loved that i'm sure like he but he was he had in mind like american students but like i didn't even understand like the rules of the game so i was like what are we doing like what's happening like so uh yeah so and then i loved my uh American politics class that I took, which was like American political thought, you know, reading about like notes on the federal convention uh, with the professor, uh, Professor Murray Dry, like I actually participated in this uh, fish shrift a couple years ago. Um, and he was like this uh, Socratic style, like professor, like asking you questions. And then I also really liked, uh, I had taken a uh, classics course because I thought I might want to do archaeology so I, I really liked that uh, so I decided to double major instead of doing physics and math I decided to do po politics and classics or classical studies yeah so yeah was the was the intention always or or when did you think that you kind of also wanted to move on to graduate school after after college, was that something you were thinking about already as an undergrad, or no? Well, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I had also taken two constitutional law courses uh, at Middlebury, and I loved those. I mean, like just reading the opinions. Like anyway, I, so I thought, oh, I maybe I want to be a lawyer. I want to go to law school, um, and so, but I didn't want to go immediately, so. I thought, so I'll go to New York City and work as a paralegal, you know, and then, you know, um, and see. So I ended up getting a job at, as a paralegal at this class action firm in New York uh, and living in this like tiny apartment. Uh, and, and then like, I hated that year. I, like, were, were, you, were you by yourself and like, like you just went to New York by yourself and lived by yourself as I, like I, a 22 year old? Uh, well, I was sharing an apartment with a friend from Turkey who had graduated from uh, Cornell. Uh, yeah. So yeah. And, and, and then she ended up returning to Turkey, but I was like, Oh, I don't, I, I, you know, I hated being a paralegal. And then the way like, 
at least my experience was like lawyers were not doing anything like particularly creative, like they were copying and pasting the same like briefs over and over again. And I thought, oh, this is not that interesting. Like you make a lot of money, but like you're always in the office and you're doing kind of like tedious stuff. And there would be like always these crises, like nearing near filing time, like where stuff had to be collated and had to be, anyway, it's probably different now. I mean, but at the time it was still like a lot of paper, you know, uh, I didn't like how much paper we were wasting. I think Middlebury had like burrowed into my <laughs> head. Like it was like, this is not environmentally friendly, you know, like, so that, uh, um, I don't know. I had all these complaints. Um, so then I, yeah. And I had taken the outside and I had done really well. Um, I was, I, yeah. Uh, so I think I could have done well with the law, law school applications, but um, uh, on the way I decided that, you know, I, I'll just go to graduate school instead. That should be more like college, which I really liked. And I will, so I took the GREs uh, somewhere, I think um, in Brooklyn, I think I took, anyway. So I ended up taking the GREs and then, yeah. And then applying to a couple of schools. And I applied to Wisconsin because one of my favorite professors from Middlebury, uh, Jeff Kaysen, who works on Latin American politics, had gone to Wisconsin. So I was like, oh, I like him. I, 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 you know, I did, I did almost no research into graduate schools because it was like a very last minute thing because I was so set on going to. Uh, yeah. So and then I got accepted to Wisconsin and Michigan. I think because my math scores were very high in, in the GREs. Uh, that's why maybe like state schools thought I was like <laughs> uh, a good candidate. Um, yeah. So then, and then, and then talking to, you know, undergraduate advisors, they said, Oh, you know, go to Madison because it's like a more eclectic kind of place. Like you don't really know what you want to do. Again, the same thing with like going to college, like you don't really know what you want to do. Like, you know, whereas if you go to Michigan, you'll have to be one thing. Whereas in Madison, you can do, a couple of different things, you'll have more options. So I was like, okay, I'll go to medicine. Did you did you visit the campuses before you made no. uh, the choice between Ann Arbor and Madison? No, no. <laughs> you just I was backpacking at that time. I had like saved this money from like par my paralegal job, uh, and then I was like, I, I had gone backpacking. Uh, in where where did you go backpacking? In 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 Turkey, like throughout the, like the country. So I had gone, you know. Uh, so once I got the, yeah, once I got the acceptance, I was like, okay, <laughs> screw this. Like I'm off, like I, I will now, yeah, use this money. Like I know I will be somewhere next fall, so I don't need to keep working at this horrible job anymore. Uh, yeah. Was, was the uh, option of going back to Turkey and, and staying there ever, did that ever enter your mind or, or had you, once you got to Middlebury and then in New York was the idea of, I'm going to stay here in the States uh, for the duration? Um, it's not so much like I'll stay here in the States, but I thought like if I go back to Turkey, I won't be able to leave again. So I've always wanted to keep keep it open. So like being outside, like at least for the first like 10 years, seemed like keeping that option open. Like I can always go back to Turkey, but if I go back, I will not be able to come out. I mean, I don't know how true that is, I mean, it's certainly not true. People have been leaving in droves, but you know, it's much harder to <laughs> to to come out than you know to return. Yeah. And you didn't have any pressure from like family to maybe think about returning or. 
I'm just saying in the in the U.S. it's just so parochial where everyone just assumes that you're going to just move back. Not everyone, but like from the in the Midwest where I'm from, everyone just kind of assumed that I would just move back, and that's just not the case. No, I mean my parents were supportive. I think initially they were like when I in high school I came up with this idea of going uh, to university abroad. They were like, oh, you know, maybe you're too young. But then I kind of won that argument, and after that. They were supportive because I seemed to be doing well. And then um, because I was in graduate school, actually, I, I could go for long periods in the summer uh, and, you know, spent a lot of time with them. So, I mean, that's usually not the case. Like, you don't spend that much time with your family in, like, in your 20s. So for them, it was nice. Like, we had a good relationship because <laughs> we would uh, see, yeah, we would spend time, like, like a month, like, in the summer, you know, together. Uh, because when I went back, I would stay with them, you know. So, uh, and then of course, the it increasingly became easier to communicate. Like I remember when I was in college, you know, you had to buy these like cards, and then you had to like type <laughs> these like numbers, and then it was like super expensive. Like so, I would talk to like my parents once a week. But like then, incre- it increasingly became easier. Like you could talk. Now it's hard to remember, uh, you know, how difficult. Oh, I, I remember. I mean, before cell phones, before Skype, before any kind of internet options, there was these calling cards that you would get. And they'd always sell them at gas stations, I remember. Yeah. I worked at a gas station in like 99 and 2000. And the only people that would come in and get those calling cards were like my friends that were international students in my in my bachelor's program. <laughs> and they'd come in and get the like a calling card every, I don't know every week yeah. or whatever yeah so when did you start at wisconsin then what fall i started 2000 so i'm like a year ahead of yelena <laughs> so you were already did you like haze her when she got there the next year or no uh yeah i mean it seems like now like uh I, the cohorts have kind of merged so it's hard to remember like who who was where but yeah i was I was in a different cohort. Uh, yeah, she arrived uh, the year after. Yes. <laughs> what? What? How did you? Um, was your transition pretty smooth into the program in the fall of two thousand? Or I think so. I mean, the, the odd thing about my year was uh, we were fourteen people, and there were only two two women, just me and uh, Shmanti Lahiri, uh, who, mm-hmm. who's uh, uh, Vanderbilt now. Yeah. So. Um, Oh, no, actually, she's taken a new job. But, uh, yeah, um, so it was, you know, that was odd. Like, you know, the, I mean, not that, like, it was a big thing, but uh, that's, I mean, it's just something that stands out. Um, well, did it, of, did it, did that impact, like, the the sort of discussions at all, having a more sort of dude-heavy uh, cohort? Like that year, like, the first year I started, there were some kind of, like, controversies in the upper years about like hostile work environment or whatever i think mm-hmm. somebody had left like porn and like grad school i mean grad students like computer lounge or something so like the upper uh upper years were like th- there were emails sent around and uh yeah so there were all these discussions about you know gender parity and so on which is like sometimes that's what i i want to tell i mean like, there's always this assumption, like when when you're younger, like things will <laughs> things will like things keep improving, but that's been you know that's like twenty years, and it's like 
I, I, we could be having those discussions like now. Like it's, you know, not much has changed. But, um, uh, were there, were there any, um, methods rivalries going on? Cause I remember that at least when I got to Iowa, that was like, that seemed like the big sort of pivot point was, you know, whether you were going to go quant or not. Um, but this was, you know, at, at sort of the tail end of the perestroika debates and that kind of stuff in political science more broadly. It wasn't so much like rivalry. I mean, uh, in my year, there were a lot of people who were doing political theory and many people were doing comparative politics and Wisconsin, Madison had this like reputation for fieldwork oriented uh, comparative politics. And I, in fact, I started doing political theory and comparative politics as well. Um, yeah, so there weren't, you know, like I wouldn't say it was a quant-heavy department. It, there was just this idea that everybody should take quantitative methods. Like this was what you needed to do to get a job. Like even though most people weren't doing that, there was there was already the belief that you should be doing it. So I was like very much like out of the norm. Like the first year I didn't take statistics. Like, And I think everybody in my year did. I ended up doing it in my third year. I mean, there was the option of doing it later, but everybody felt like, oh, they had to like do it. Um, yeah. I mean, it wasn't so much a rivalry as like kind of like a concern, I guess, in the background. Well, and then how did, I mean, if you went in with political theory or not went in, but you eventually uh, became attracted to both political theory and comparative. Um, and I still, I mean, I, I still see it was, on the in the intersection of IR comparative and theory, right? Um, even nowadays, but uh, when did IR become sort of something that you were interested in? Was it a little bit later? Or? Yeah, this is a this is a funny story. So uh, I went in say like in my app application, I wrote, oh, I want to do like Middle Eastern politics, Turkish, or whatever, because partly because I thought this is how I they will accept me, you know, because I, I am from Turkey, they expect me to do this. So I, I will say that I will do it. And then I was assigned to, you know, in, in my first year, uh, Michael Barnett as a supervisor, like as, an, as his student, you know, he was going to be my advisor. And then I went to meet with him. So I teased him about this all still. And he says, oh, you know, you, you should just drop me. Sh I shouldn't be your advisor because I don't care about Middle Eastern politics. And do you really want to be like a person from the Middle East doing Middle Eastern politics? It's so boring. Uh, so so then, then I like ended up finding another uh, advisor. But he, uh, had, but, but he had written in the 90s on Middle East politics. Yeah, yeah but he had decided, like he had left that behind by that oh, time. Oh, like, okay. Doing, like, his, uh, you know, Rwanda and like humanitarianism stuff or was starting to, I suppose. Uh, yeah, so I ended up convincing Mark Beisinger to take me on. Uh, and I thought for a while I will study like maybe secessionist movements or revolutions, you know, I was into those. Uh, and then I passed like the, at the end of the second year, the prelims. Uh, and then third year at Madison, at that time, I don't know what it is now, you were supposed to do a minor. Um, and I decided I'm going to do IR as a minor. That seemed like, the most sensible thing to do. So I ended up taking two classes from Michael that fall. And, and then he, he convinced me, <laughs> I guess like, you know, I made a good impression. So like, he was like, he came to me or he asked me to meet with him. And then he said, you know, like 
you actually have like very broad interests and you know compared to politics for you it's very limiting so if you know if you switch to IR you can do whatever you want to do IR is very broad <laughs> so so he he kind of did the same lobbying with you that he did with Yelena probably around the same time right I yes, mean because she said he time. lobbied her as well yeah so uh, the same time. Yeah, I remember like talking to Yelena because we were both trying to switch and I was like very stressed out by the idea of like telling Mark Weisinger that I wanted to switch. Uh, and like, I remember like commiserating uh, about that. I think she handled it much better. But um, yeah, so yeah. So I, I, we ended up both switching. I mean, I, that was also like, we ended up bonding more over that experience. I think the fact that we switched. Uh, around the same time. I don't know what like Michael was thinking, but I mean, it was good. <laughs> Why was he going around recruiting students? Like this, is, this seems, you know, I mean, I love my PhD students, but it seems like, you know, uh, almost irrational, like trying to take on more students. <laughs> I, I was just going to say, I, I think that's probably a big distinction between now and 20 years ago. I, I don't know, maybe... I, Maybe people still lobby students. I don't know. I, I, I'm the same way. I don't really. I, my view is if a student wants to work with me, that's great. I'll work with them. But otherwise, <laughs> they can find someone else to work with. Yeah. How did you, um, were you already then developing what would become your dissertation by this point? Um, and uh, after, de after defeat, was, was your dissertation or not? It, it, it is, I mean, After Defeat is based on my dissertation. Okay. So I ended up completely rewriting the front half. So the, case, cases, the, case, the cases were the same. Uh, so, yeah, I think I had the idea of wanting to compare uh, Turkey and Japan, especially. Uh, yeah, because I had, I had and like, rushed up, like, because I had been reading stuff that made me think, this is very odd, like, that they have the same kind of debates. Like, how do we explain this? I haven't been exposed to anything in, you know, IR that or like any corner of political science that explains this. Um, so, yeah. And did you, um, I guess when I've always sort of lo looked at your work, I've always sort of seen you as someone that was critical of the kind of the happy norms stuff in the 1990s and as someone bringing a more critical edge or interpretation to the norms. But did you see yourself doing that or was it just one of those things that the cases sort of led you to looking at the ways? More of, a, more of a byproduct because I switched, because I switched at the end of my third year into IR and I, by the way, in under, undergraduate uh, education, I didn't take one IR course. So it was all political theory, constitutional law, that sort of stuff. So I had like, I didn't really know <laughs> what, what uh, IR was about. Uh, I knew what like I had seen from Michael's courses. One was on ethics, international moralities, and the other one was a IR theory course. And then of course, they, in order to switch, they made me take a, third prelim like I had to do so I quickly came up to speed but it wasn't like a literature I was really like immersed in so like actually if you look at the book like after defeat I think I don't really say norms anywhere like because I didn't even quite know how to speak the the language I mean and one of the comments I got from the reviewers at CUP was like 
oh, you know, this is all very interesting, but doesn't speak to, one of the reviewers said, doesn't speak to IR debates as, as much as it can. So I ended up going back and inserting stuff like, this is what the realists would say, like, you know, that sort of thing. So I wasn't thinking like that. I was think I was driven by uh, more like substantive puzzle for me that I was trying to um, answer. That's why the cases, like, so I had the cases and in the dissertation stage, I was using other stuff, trying to make sense of it, like world systems theory or uh, critical race stuff, like like anything, like trying to make sense of. And it's only after I defended that I got immersed in like more sociological literature. And I, I said, oh, actually, like this explains it much better. So I ended up completely... Um, rewriting the first half, like the theoretical stuff came after I, <laughs> I got my PhD. Well, and then were you, um, what was Wisconsin like in terms of professionalization? Like, were you already uh, presenting at conferences? Uh, to, no. uh, oh, really? Okay. No, I didn't really. I think the first conference I went to was uh, my fifth, year it must have been my was san diego so when was san diego the first oh six spring of oh six yeah. yeah so that was the very first isa went to which is very late in <laughs> uh so i didn't yeah i didn't realize uh and i wasn't trying to publish because michael said oh you know like write a good dis- dissertation and that that will be a you know if that's that's a good book that will make your career you don't need to like worry about um, <laughs> publishing articles so much. So I wasn't really thinking like that. I was just trying to write the best dissertation I could. Um, yeah, and conferences. Yeah, the, San Diego was my first one where I didn't really know anybody, but I met Shogo, Shogo Suzuki in that conference. So that's my uh, first conference contact um, and friend. Yeah. So I, professionalization wasn't, I mean, there was some stuff. I think maybe more people, like some people were more aware of it. I was kind of like in my own world. Also, what ended up happening is once I became ABD, I left Madison. Uh, first, uh, I lived in Chicago um, and then in Istanbul. You know, I was doing research in Istanbul, but I stayed like way longer than I needed to and because I was enjoying being back in Istanbul and... Yeah, so I ended up staying in Istanbul for almost two years. So I was like a little bit disconnected. I came back when I was on the job market and Madison did like some practice job talks for me, which was helpful. So I, I guess I, did, I that's new to me. I guess I didn't know that. Or maybe you told me one time and I just forgot because we were drinking at a bar or something. But, um, but this, <laughs> <laughs> um, this is interesting. So you didn't... Um, you actually didn't go on the market when you were finishing up your dissertation. Was the plan in the back of your mind, was that planned that you would, you would finish the dissertation and then take a sort of couple years to recharge or? No, well, I didn't. I mean, I did go, no, I did go like, so I was in I, Istanbul. So, okay. I became ABD and then I went to Istanbul. I stayed there for two years. I came back and was living in Chicago when I uh, went on the job market. Uh, and commuting to medicine as needed. Um, and my hope was actually like, yeah, to get a job. Uh, I mean, 
like in retrospect, I was naive because I didn't really have publications or even that many conference presentations, nothing really. I just had a dissertation. Um, and in fact, the dissertation was like also like not fully done. Like when I went on the job market, and in fact, I remember Michael saying like, you know, you, you could take another year. But I was like at that time, like really, you know, fed up by being a PhD student. And I was married, like I wanted to be a grown-up. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that was like, no, I'm going to go on the job market and see like what happens. Uh, and then, I mean, I don't know how, like I got a bunch of interviews and then um, the second place I interviewed at Washington Lee offered me a job and then I took it, you know, and then I canceled the rest of my interviews. I was like so lucky. And then next year, the job, like there was the financial crisis and the job market completely crashed. So like, Actually, like speaking to you about my life story, I realized like how lucky I've been in like so many different intervals. Like I, I am just like, I mean, not good, but a very lucky person making like in hindsight somewhat, yeah, like risky decisions and like having them work out for me. Yeah. Well, anyway, and it's like, you know, don't try this at home. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you're, I've actually interviewed several people who, um, and I was the same way. I went on the market probably a year before you then maybe a year, two years before you it, but I, I think about it all the time about how lucky we were in terms of just the number of jobs that were available. I mean, that was the thing is that it was on the one hand, it was, um, sort of, uh, it was dejecting because you would apply to all of these jobs and then get all of these like rejection letters on the one hand. But on the other hand, it's like, at least there were a lot of jobs that you could apply for in 2005, 2006, 2007. And then the financial crisis came and it just wiped them all out. So you're not, the, I don't think you're the first one to, to mention that, but it sounds to me then that you actually took the job at Washington and Lee fairly early in that year cycle or whatever, because you still had other interviews set up or? Yeah, I did. So I interviewed for that, I think beginning of November. Mm-hmm. And then they, I interviewed towards the end of the week and then they made me an offer like on Monday and I was like, okay, I'll take it. Because what I had lined up, like interviews were like similar schools. So um, yeah, and I liked it, you know, it reminded me, Washington Lee reminded me of Middlebury, Middlebury. Like, even though it's in the South, it's like a liberal arts college. I like the town. I like the people I met. Um, so I was like, okay, you know, this, this, this is a good place. Uh, like, why stay, you know, on the market and <laughs> increase uncertainty? Uh, yeah, so. What was the transition into Washington and Lee like? Did you, um, I, 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 I think this would have been right around the time that I first met you. It would like maybe yeah. 2007, 2008, I think was the first time I met you. And, uh, we met I, at IFA Northeast. Yep. Uh, yeah. And I think that was, yeah. Uh, I was persuaded to go to that ISA Northeast by Dan Green, who I had met at that year's ISA, whichever was 2007 ISA and he was like I'm putting together an English school panel you should be on it uh, and I do want to make a declaration now for, for anybody who watches this I am not an English school person <laughs> I, I am sympathetic to the English school but I'm not English school I, I, I sometimes see my work characterized as this uh, I mean not that there's anything wrong with English school but 
for reasons I've explained earlier, like I have no training in the English school, so it's unfair to English school or post-colonial theory or whatever to say that I am one of these things. Like whatever I argue, I happen on it accidentally. You, you, um, uh, you may not remember this, but I think that's how you started your presentation at the 2008 ISA Northeast. <laughs> it was like, I'm not part of the English school. I don't even know why I'm here. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. So I, I think that was my first year as an assistant professor. And in fact, I was trying to publish my first article that I sent you for comments and then you gave me comments. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. And this was the famous biological <laughs> insecurity article in international relations. Yes. Yes. That, that so, everyone um, cites and everyone, and some of them even read it. Yes. Yeah. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. You were, you were my second conference contact. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason why I sent it to international relations is because, uh, well, I tried EJR first and then they uh, reject, they rejected me for, and they said, it's not theoretical enough. Thank you. Like whatever, like whoever was that time. Anyway, I know who it is, but I won't say, but uh, <laughs> I hope they regret it because that article does have a lot of citations. Anyway, so then I su- submitted to international relations because Shogo had published there. So I thought, well, if they like Shogo's work, maybe they'll like my work also. And then, yeah. And then it took a very long time because at the time, I think international relations had not yet um, fully, had not gone fully digital. So it took a long time and I didn't know how long was normal. Um, but then it turned out, yeah, I'm very happy actually that, you know, that article found a good home. Did you know I was a reviewer? Did I ever tell you that? I think you did tell me afterwards, but that's, you know, you also gave me comments. That's a little bit of a conflict of interest that you like <laughs> reviewed an article that you gave comments on. All right. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to come clean and, and set the record straight here that I reviewed actually the first version of it said it was really good and everything. And then I think you probably got a revised resubmit uh, initially. And it was when you were working on the revisions that you sent it to me. Okay, okay. So that's when we met. Yeah, that's. Of yeah, course. yeah, because we had met like in between. So I didn't know it was you when I first reviewed it. Okay. Um, and then after you sent me the revised version, then I knew it, it was you. But then they didn't send me the revised version for some reason because they must have thought I was too like positive of a reviewer or whatever. So then when it came out, I was like, "Great, this came out, awesome." Yes. No, thank you. Yeah. And did you? What did you? Did you? Um, have like sort of any expectation or like what were the expectations for publishing uh, as you were working towards tenure at Washington and Lee? I mean, obviously the focus is equally on maybe equally on research and teaching and then also some service or was there any expectations for expectation? I mean, it was more of like a book department. So most people, I mean, most people wrote books. And so if you had a book and I don't think that it had to be necessarily like, Cambridge or whatever, um, a book and a couple of articles, I think would get you tenure, you know, uh, especially if you were like a good teacher, uh, maybe less if you're a, like an excellent teacher. Uh, so, I mean, there was some expectation that you would publish, but it wasn't like, actually it was like a really good job, you know, because it was a very supportive environment the students were great you know you could be as creative as you wanted with classes like I could teach whatever I wanted um with almost no oversight um yeah and then there was like a lot of uh money 
for conferences. Like you didn't even have to present in order to go to a conference. Like you could use, I think it was $2,500. Um, you could use it for conference stuff. Uh, and then there was separate summer money. Like, you know, I mean, those types of jobs are like really <laughs> appreciated. They can be really, really good. So, I mean, my main concern was a bit being cut off because it was a small department and I liked my colleagues, but there wasn't, with the exception of one person, like Robin LeBlanc, who's an excellent uh, scholar of Japan, uh, there wasn't anybody whose research like really overlapped with mine. So I was kind of eager for um, like research connections. So I spent most of my conference budget like going to conferences, like small conferences, big conferences, you know, as you know. And of course, at the time, I didn't really have the network to be invited anywhere. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> so I spent my own money. I mean, my, my own money, my like departmental money to go anywhere I could. Uh, you were invited as a keynote speaker at the University of Kansas. Uh, yeah, but that was, oh, thank you. That was you. Uh, so, but that was like year four, I think. Uh, so I'm talking about the beginning. Yeah. Well, and then... Um, when did, like, wh what year were you when you, um, when uh, After Defeat started going under review? And did it just go under review at Cambridge, or? No. Um, so, initially, I sent it to Cornell. I think I told you the story also. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, is this what you're trying to get out of me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, so... Yeah, there I didn't have a very good experience because um, the editor kind of sat on it for like a year in my first year. And then, you know, I think I finally like had Michael ask, Michael or e either Michael or David Laney, who's another, uh, who's my other advisor uh, and had published, they had both published with Cornell. I had, I had them ask maybe like what's all happening with the manuscript. And then, you know, the editor got back to me and said, oh, this is all very good. But like, you know, there's a big question, like you never answer, like what the West is, you know, like, and I think now that I like lived in the UK and the editor is English, like I can go back. I, I, I don't have that letter and read it as like a rejection, but I took it as <laughs> like, as like a challenge, like explain what the West is. <laughs> so I ended up like, like writing a whole chapter, uh, I think my first chapter, okay, first and second chapter, uh, like deal with that question of like West evolution. Like, so yeah, I spent the next year answering that question, next year, next six months. Um, and then I like resubmitted, thinking that's like now that I have met the challenge, you know, and then of course again, like radio silence, uh, months, months, which, I mean, fair enough, like, editors are busy. It's just, like, the only thing that's, like, annoying about it is, you know, with a junior scholar, like... You, the time's <laughs> ticking, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I was, like, yeah. approaching the end of my second year with, like, one publication, one article, that IR article, kind of, you know, making its way out, like, through. Uh, anyway, so then I finally, like, again, like, had somebody ask and then got officially, like, rejected the second time. Uh, I think that's what happens. Yes. Or did I pull it? I don't remember. Anyway, for, and then I was like, okay, I'm going to submit to Cambridge because the, the letter said, oh, you know, this is more like Cambridge type of book. 
Uh, so I guess like they let me down easy. <laughs> uh, very slowly, but gently. Um, and uh, yeah, so that, okay, I, I submitted to Cambridge and I know a lot of people like wait for a long time at Cambridge, but in that case, I was lucky. My review process was very quick. Uh, I think I submitted in March uh, or even April maybe. And then I heard, I remember it was 4th of July. And I had just found out recently that I was pregnant. And then I got, <laughs> I got the news that, you know, Cambridge, you know, two good, great reviews and, and they want to proceed, you know, they're going to give me a contract. So. And I, I bet I know when this was, I think it was, this was probably the summer of 2009. Would that have been right around yeah. when? Yeah. I because mean, I, I saw you, um, I don't think I ran into you. Maybe I did. And oh, 2010. I, 2010. 2010. No, 2010 is when I gave birth. So it was 2009. Yes. Yeah. Cause in this, um, at the, cause you still went to the ISA that year. It was in new Orleans in 2010, I think. Um, but you were pretty far along. I was very uh, Like I was like right at the border of whether you can fly or not. Like if I had <laughs> twins, I wouldn't be able to fly. So that's. <laughs> <laughs> but that, I mean, what a great summer to like, you find, find out you're pregnant and you're also like going to get a Cambridge book. Yes. Yeah. So that was, yeah. Yeah. So that was good. Yeah. And then that, you know, once the book came out, that's really like changed everything for me. Yeah. I mean, the book, I mean, so Michael turned out to be right, even though it was kind of like in hindsight, it's like, I would never tell my students, Oh, don't worry about publishing. <laughs> Just <start. laughs> <laughs> it turned out to be right in the sense that like you know once i i published the book yeah it did, it did. i mean I, I mean of course i was very lucky i already had a job but mm -hmm. it it opened all, all sorts of other doors for me the book did you start flirting with the market then after the book came oh, out uh no not really um i was uh yeah i don't think yeah i wasn't really on the market I mean, I would look at job applications uh, every now and then, and maybe I may have applied to one or two things that like seemed amazing, but uh, no bites. Um, but in general, I was pretty happy at uh, Washington Lee. Um, and then, of course, you know, giving birth and stuff. Like, I wasn't like, I thought uh, at a later stage in my career, I might, I might look around, you know, uh, with more publications and so on. But at the time, like, it didn't seem to me, sorry, like, this is a very rare day in the UK where it's, like, so sunny and hot. <laughs> I've been watching the sun, like, slowly creep <laughs> into your eyes. I'm going to turn my computer a little bit like this. That's okay. Yeah. Whatever yes. you need. Um, I, like, going to all these conferences, like, you know, it took me a long time to figure out, like, the lay of the land because I wasn't paying attention and graduate school and I came to IR in the sideway fashion but uh, once I like started going to conferences meeting people like taking part in the publication stuff it became clear to me like I actually probably had one of the best jobs I could have doing the kind of stuff I do in the US at the time I wasn't thinking of you know going to another country so I was like is it really you know worth wasting my time applying for jobs it's uh are ones when they're not going to hire somebody like me who does what I do. Like, so I was, that's why maybe I wasn't like really looking because. When did, did Cambridge come calling to you? 
Yeah, I got yeah, I got an email from um, Duncan Bell, mm-hmm. who I didn't know, and who I later <laughs> later found out that had emailed a lot of people. But of course, at the time, it was very flattering. So it was like, oh, you know, I read your book. We have this job uh, opening um, at Cambridge, and this was like February or something, uh, because UK is out of cycle. It's not like on the American cycle. Uh, would you consider applying? Mm-hmm. And and I had also like at the same time I found out I was a finalist for this uh, for the Council on uh, Foreign Relations uh, thing. Oh, I think I had gone to the interview in Washington D.C. So because that that's what I thought was going to happen. I was going to be in the U.S. I was going to be based in Virginia, but I thought maybe. I could make my life and work more interesting by being more engaged in the the policy world. So I had applied for a international affairs fellowship uh, with the Council on Foreign Relations, and yeah, I, I remember I was go- I was driving back from the interview and I got this email from uh, Duncan Bell, and I was like, okay, well, you know, uh, <laughs> I will apply if if they're asking me to apply, and then I applied, and then I made the long list and then the short list and then they I got a campus invitation but I talked to some people and they said you know like Cambridge they always hire their own like they're probably shortlisting you because you're a woman and you're like Turkish and who were these people that were saying that to you these weren't friends were they Uh, I was like, I don't care you know I actually don't care like you know like okay I, I've never been to the UK. <laughs> And I will get a trip out of it, you know. So, uh, so I, I, you know, went, and that made me very comfortable because I, <laughs> I didn't think I had a realistic chance. Uh, so I was like, you know, haha, like you know, <laughs> I do this every week, you know. <laughs> so yes, uh, yeah, and then I, I, well, in the UK they often call you the day off. Because everybody gets interviewed on the same day, you know. Right, and did you did you know that uh, sometimes people even know who else is interviewing because they're all together, right? But oh, I know one of the people was Dave McCourt because he told me after. Oh like, really? I didn't know yeah, that. Two years later, like he told me at ISA that he was one of the people. Like oh. we were at that big dinner. You don't remember? I think it was Baltimore. Oh yeah. Oh well, that big dinner was such a mess. There was. <laughs> There were so many people there. Just like every big ISA dinner, you can't yes. hear yourself. I miss them that. now. Like I miss ISA dinners. Oh. I don't miss the dinners. I miss the happy hours and then the nightcaps uh, after dinners. Because um, I think even them, you and me and Halvard and Ben went to. Yeah, go ahead if you need to shut the <laughs> the blinds. Um. Didn't you and me and Halvard and Bang uh, go to the pub at the Brewer's Art then after that? After that dinner? Yeah. yeah. So that yeah. night, that yeah. night, they, David McCord was saying he was one of the people. Oh, okay. But you, but you didn't see him at the interview when you were physically there, right? No, or, I think they like, right. tried to like make sure that, but it's just possible you could run into them in the corridor or something. Mm-hmm. And, and, but thankfully, like, you know, some UK departments like make job cabins go to din- dinner together. So thankfully, they didn't do that. They like t- took us out to dinner uh, individually. Um, and then yeah. was it pretty much a no-brainer for you when you got the offer? Um, 
or I mean, were you already envisioning moving the family to the UK, doing all of that uh, before you even went on the interview or? No, no, because again, like I, I didn't think, so I didn't think I was going to get it. So I hadn't allowed myself to like really daydream about that. But um, I mean, it was a big decision in the sense, of course, like we had bought a house there and, you know, I had a two year old um, and we liked where we were living. We had good friends. I mean, we were like, we were settled, you know, um, but there were some, like one of the advantages was um, for my husband, um, he was commuting uh, to work. Like, so he would work from home and then go to the New York office for part of the week. Um, he's, he's an engineer. Um, so he was like part of the time there, part of the time not. The advantage of coming to, I mean, coming to Cambridge worked for him too, because his company has a London office so he could go back to going to the office like every day, which is of course important for, you know, his, his company had accommodated them, but you know, this for career advancement and so on, you have to be present. Uh, so it worked kind of for both of us, like in terms of, you know, career goals. And of course, I mean, even though I liked my job at Washington and Lee and I liked the students, I liked my colleagues. I always like things to be like, challenging like I'm always trying to <laughs> challenge myself like each the research project I do is more complicated than the next one because I, I don't like being I mean part of me I think doesn't like being comfortable I mean I could have um, when I was 17 years old you know I could have decided to stay in Turkey and at the time given my background like the projections would be that I would have a very comfortable <laughs> life. I mean, things change politically, but you know, so yeah, I think I've all, I've always like, you know, to be challenged. So Cambridge seemed like a more challenging path uh, than what I had. Um, and how was, when you got there, was the transition for you, for the family, did it go pretty smoothly? Um uh professionally did it go pretty smoothly like how was I think you so, said you yeah. never you had never like until the interview you, did you mentioned you'd never been to the, to the UK no I had not been to the UK until my interview. <laughs> uh so actually I remember like so I uh, I flew here and then a friend of mine from college this dear Greek friend he was doing a postdoc at Oxford. So he picked me up from the airport. I, I came in an, a day early just to get acclimated. And, uh, and then I remember like, uh, I was trying to like in his apartment, I was trying to plug my phone and I was like, I'm, uh, why doesn't this work? Like I have the right bit. Like, why doesn't it work? Because if you have to, they have these like switches. I, like that's how ignorant I was of like <laughs> the UK. Um, Adjustment wise, I think it wasn't too bad. I mean, the, I mean, universities are universities wherever they are. So like the fundamentals of the thing is the same. And university towns are also <laughs> remarkably similar. I mean, I always tell my students when I lecture uh, IR, like introduction to IR, like we, we like get hung up on how different like things are, but Actually, we should be like really amazed by like how similar things are like everywhere around the world. Um, so the fundamentals are the same. And I, I mean, of course, it's like 
almost speaking another language, like having to, like learning the terminology. Like, so not only the UK's ter- university terminology is a bit different, Cambridge has its own weird language. So um, yeah, like learning that stuff like that and how things work. But like any, going to any university takes, I think at least a year to, <laughs> to figure out who actually is the power holder. Like who is the person to talk to, to get things done? Like it's not always the person you think, you know? Um, and then uh, I was given some in my second year and third year, some administrative duties. And of course that, you know, once you have an administrative job, you kind of figure out how, how things work. Um, yeah. And then the cultural adjustment, you know, I think it's easier when you have a child, like you kind of learn through them as well. I mean, of course there are like still things, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, Cambridge is a very international town also. So that's like a big advantage. I mean, most, most of our friends are couples who are like each person is from a different place. And then all of our children speak with a British accent, but we all have like our own, you know, so yeah. But you know, I'm, I'm actually kind of an optimist always. Like I always, I always like wherever I live. I mean, there are very few places that I didn't like living in. <laughs> I mean, maybe, I mean, it, part of it is like, I've been very lucky, mm-hmm. but part of it is, I think I just like new things and learning things and, meeting people. Practices, scholarly practices. That's our next topic. Have you, have you listened to any of these podcasts? I have, I have, but let me go. No, go ahead. Yeah. Because it's, as my son would say, it's boiling Yes, scholarly practices, yes. So where do you do your writing? How do you do your writing? I work mostly in this... Okay, so this is going to sound very spoiled, uh, but I have three offices. (laughs) One is in the department, one is in college, and then one is at home, which is where I am. Uh, So... I work either here, in terms of writing, I either write here or in my departmental office. And my college office I use for uh, teaching these, you know, these things the Cambridge system has where we do one-to-one or one-to-two kind of Like tutorials or whatever with with students. Uh Um, Are you able in your department office to get work done? Like you don't have people interrupting you or whatever? I do. So I don't really like what last year when I was on sabbatical, I actually stayed mostly here for that reason. Like if I want to get proper writing down, down. And, you know, now it's a bit difficult because everybody's always home, you know, but uh, um, on on sabbatical, like during the day, I could work very productively here. Uh, I could do some, I can do some writing in my departmental office if it's like, um, well, I mean, you're like much more prolific than I am, but I've, I've come to the point in my, <laughs> in my career where I find it not that hard to work on short things, uh, like in the general uh, routine of the day or the term. What I find difficult and what I need, like chunks of time, 
are things like, I mean, this book project I'm completing. Like that's like having to do a, like a lot of reading and then like kind of synthesize that. Whereas like for articles or book chapters, like where I kind of already know what I'm going to say, like I can write that like anywhere. Like I could write it in an airport on a plane, like, you know, like, so, yeah. <laughs> it's the new stuff, like where you're... And the big yeah. stuff, right? And, right? Yeah, the big stuff, yeah. Where you need to kind of sit in it and like let it marinate, that kind of, yeah. Do you find there's a certain time of day that you write better or is it just kind of whenever the moment strikes? Um, I used to write a lot at night. Uh, I think graduate school and so on, like I was always writing at night. Um, I think left to my own devices, I'm kind of a night person. Uh, but ever since having a child, like <laughs> I can't work at night really. I mean, only recently I've gone back to like sometimes I will work after everybody has gone to sleep, you know, after 10 or something, like, you know, if I still have it in me, I will read or write a little bit. But now I work more in the morning, uh, especially if I haven't exercised that day. So if I exercise, I find I'm like too tired. So I can only do kind of like mindless stuff, you know, like. Emails know. or whatever. Emails whatever. or yeah. I I I was the same way. I was a third shift writer when I was in grad school, and when I was an assistant, and then when the kids came along, it shifted a little bit. But then the last year, I've had I've just been waking up in the middle of the night and just not being able to fall back to sleep like a lot. Um, so so I actually did before the quarantine. Even before the quarantine, um, leading up to the quarantine, it was like basically every night I wasn't getting more than four hours of sleep. But then I would, I actually got a little bit done, like from like two to four a.m., just like I did back when I was in grad school. So it brought back good memories of when I was younger and could handle that. But I physically can't handle that now. It's like if I don't get a good amount of sleep, mentally I'm not there, physically I'm not there. Um, but uh, but yeah, I totally get how that having it <laughs> being on the child's rhythm you have to you have to kind of work uh work around yeah. also that. like you can't really work right in the afternoon because you get going and then you have to like i do all the school pickup so like you know and then you get interrupted so you have to kind of write in the morning like i know and that's that's what's difficult right because sometimes you want to just keep it going you don't want to i mean especially if it's just flowing and, and you're doing yes. really well and i've always i've always been the one that picks the kids up uh and drops them off and so that's always been a challenge for me um but then do you so it, it obviously it depends on the project but do you um how do you start do you outline how do you start a, a paper or a, a a book chapter or whatever do you kind of start with an outline do you actually write like for me it's always like a a like a notebook that I'll start sketching out physically with my hand and then, uh, you know, like writing it like longhand and then I'll, I'll transfer it over to a computer. But like, how do you go through that process? Um, I, I read a lot first, like a lot. Uh, I mean, this may be different for some, in some articles where like, I kind of, I know the literature, but that's stuff I do for other people. Like actually what, what I really like to do is to like, read and learn new things uh so i don't want to shortchange that process sometimes you do because like you you have stuff due <laughs> and you don't like you just make do but um in general like okay this is my ideal <laughs> i'm not saying i always do this uh so i read i read like i i 
And when I'm reading, I'm if it's like a like if it's a book, you know, I read and I take notes or like I underline things, and then I and I start compiling notes like in Evernote. I've been using Evernote since grad school. So anything that I read where I think there's like something interesting, I make like a file for that and I uh, either jot down notes for myself or like I copy paste or like if it's a PDF or I type or scan uh, from a hard copy. And that like helps me like learn like, uh, and then of course you forget. I'm so glad I started doing this in grad school because like there's stuff I read that I don't remember that I read, but now <laughs> I like first like go search <laughs> and then I, like my past self thought these were like <laughs> the important and you you get the point where you have to trust your past self because uh, anyway um yeah and then at some point i have enough of a you know sense that i i then i maybe make an outline of like what i want to argue like as as you said like i sketch it out and then i start writing but i find that like writing is a way of thinking for me because i often find the first draft is complete like <laughs> you can yeah, I mean, it's like just to get it out of your system. And then, especially with the book, and it was the same way with my first book. I wrote the introductory chapter maybe three, four times from scratch uh, until uh, until I got... Now I have an introductory chapter that I really like. I mean, the, the ones before were workable, but um, I, again, like, I want to do something that's... Especially with books... I want to do something that I want to read, like not just something that will get me a publication. And also, of course, like <laughs> I can afford that now. Um, so yeah, so it takes me like, my ideal process is this. And then I, you know, in the book, you know, you may end up like I've done, I've written more than half of it, but this, uh, the epidemic stuff happened. So I thought, oh, I should talk more about you know, epidemic. So I ended up like doing more reading. Like now I have to rewrite some of the <laughs> stuff that I had written. Like, so it's, but it's all, you know, it's more the journey, right? I mean, we, t we tend to think like it's all because of the CV, but, but why are we doing this if it's not like actually to <laughs> enjoy that process of reading and writing? I mean, otherwise it's not for the, the big bucks. So <laughs> no, I completely agree. Like, and I've only within the last year and a half started to get to that point where I'm like, because I don't get to write very often anymore <laughs> with being department chair. And obviously with the pandemic, it's just made it even more difficult. Like when I do get to write, I really enjoy it a lot more. Um, even if there's, it's like you said, you, the first draft is just crap and you have to like, kind of go back to it over and over and over again. But do you, did you, I, I don't know. I, maybe I was the only one that, that did this uh, because it's, it's, it's also a risky strategy, but I used to um, propose papers that I didn't know really what I was going to write to conferences so that I would at least have that built in deadline. So I knew I would have to write if it got accepted. Did, did you ever use that strategy or did you not really have to, it was stuff you were well, going to write anyway? No, I did. I mean, I, I, I did do that. Now, like I owe so many like handbook chapters and whatever to, to people that I would never like go out of my way to propose anything. Like it's more like, oh, like please forget that I existed so I don't owe you. 
<laughs> but yes, I remember there was a time when I would propose to write. Yeah. <laughs> well, how do you, I mean, that's a good question for like folks that are at this stage of their careers. Like, how do you, how do you say no now? I'm really bad at mm-hmm. saying no. Uh, in fact, uh, Jason, uh, <laughs> my head of department, Jason Sharman, he's always telling me you have to say no to these, like, you know, edited books and handbook chapters and so on. But I don't know. Like, it's very hard. I mean, I have said no a couple times, you know. Like, you know, I, It's not like I never say no, but I find it difficult uh, to say no. Because also, like, you know, you like most people who ask you, you like them or like they've done, you know, things for you, you owe people favors. Also, like project seems worthwhile. And then it's like, um, like when people ask, you know, they say 5,000 words. And if I'm like, if I'm writing well, like if I know what I'm going to say, I could do that in two days. It's like, so, so I, when, I, when I'm asked, oh, I always think of the best case scenario, like, oh, I'll just, you know, it'll just take me a week. But actually, like, the psychic weight of, like, owing somebody something is just, like, much worse than how long, like, yeah, I um, find. How, how often are you, I mean, you got it. I mean, you're like all of us, you probably got to get asked to review. Oh, yeah, we were talking about this on Twitter. <laughs> Sometimes it's the same manuscript. Um, because you had a week where you were asked, like, literally every day, like, of the week to review a separate <laughs> manuscript and i think i was at the same point too because it was probably the same manuscript so how how many manuscripts either book or or article length do you not that you get asked but that you actually review in a year like what would be a typical year for you uh i was keeping track of this couple like i think maybe not last year but because i stopped for because when i was on sabbatical the year before i was on sabbatical uh I, I think I had reached 20 or something by November and then I stopped, I started saying, no, I don't want to do any more this year. Uh, and this was when I was an editor myself. So like I got to the point where I f- started feeling really burnt out um, and I felt like I wasn't giving any good quality feedback. I mean, that's part of the, like, it's not just selfishness. It's like actually like, because I, at that point I had seven PhD students I was an editor myself, so I was, like, reading other people's manuscripts all the time, plus, like, reviewing stuff, plus you get asked by friends and so on, like, oh, like, so there's stuff you do. (laughs) So I was, like, I actually, like, just want to read, like, stuff I want to read for a while, like, you know, like, books or, like, fiction or, like, I'm tired of, uh, like, reading other people's things with a critical eye, like, also, like, having to have a critical eye like it also takes a bit of the enjoyment of uh like always thinking about like what could be improved um yeah so i think there is like diminishing returns at some point um so then i decided like until that that time i was like saying yes to most everything unless like i had three at a time or something that i would say no um now i'm i'm more on more editorial ports uh, so I, I try to prioritize those. So if they say, if they ask me, I say yes. With others, I'm a little bit more selective. And between the three, four journals that I'm on the editorial board of, like there's almost always something that I'm reviewing. So I say no to more, like to other journals more. Um, but yeah, how do you do it? 
I don't have a system. I, I thought I would have a system and now I don't have a system. I mean, I, I think I'm like a lot of people though. I I've had to, I've had to decline quite a few manuscripts in the last month due to the pandemic, just because it's been such a, such an overhaul here at home with the kids doing synchronous learning and having to help them. And then with the department. So there I, I felt badly like sort of saying no and declining. Um, but at the same time, it's like you said, I mean, you're, if, if we're going to just kind of do this in a really cursory way, we're not doing anybody any favors by writing up, you know, whatever two paragraphs of a, of a review that's not going to help anyone. So, so that's been my system lately, but I didn't really have much of a system. There was one year, like here we have to count everything and report it as part of a faculty activity report every year. And there was one year where I reviewed 29 manuscripts. I counted it up, uh, article length manuscripts and like four or five books and book length manuscripts. And, and I didn't, I didn't realize this until the end when I kind of calculated it and searched my email. And then, it, and then you get this too, I'm sure I, I, I get quite a few, I, I don't say quite a few, but you know, like a half dozen every year, um, uh, promotion and tenure reviews, right. External reviews. And those take up quite a bit of time. And those you really do need to put, put your all into it because someone's career's on the line. Um, not just because of your letter, I mean, because of a lot of things, but your letter is important. So I just basically said yes to everything for years. And then I've, the last couple of years, I've just had to decline. I never decline the promotion and tenure cases because I think those are so important. And I do think that there's probably some places that um, if they see a, a lot of declined um, uh, offers in terms of letter writers, they, they think it reflects on the person that's going up, um, which they shouldn't because there's just people that are getting asked to review are getting asked to review a bunch of different ones. But um, have you been doing those too? I've done a couple of tenures. Uh, I mean, uh, and then I've done some promotion stuff like, uh, I mean, because we don't have tenure. I mean, so but promotion letters here or Europe, um, not that many. I mean, that one, that's, that part is okay. I mean, book review, book manuscript stuff. I, I do a lot of those. Um, and I mean, at least those pay you. <laughs> I mean, it's not like great payment, but I also like, because I have a very good relationship with uh, my editor, John Haslam. Like if he asks me to do something, I always say yes. So um, do one or two of those a year and then some other publishers. But yeah, it's all of this stuff adds up. Like I think when I was a graduate student, like I had no idea. And I think maybe our students don't either. Like how much of like you see a professor, it's like, and what you see is like the tip of the iceberg and like all these other things that they have to do. Uh, plus like, it's a much busier time of your uh, like personal life, like because you have family responsibilities and parents and you know, like, yeah. So it's just actually like now I think back to grad school and like, I was like, I almost had nothing to do <laughs> and it took me so long to write that dissertation. <laughs> I, I know, but didn't you, um, well, now it sounds like, especially during your sabbatical, you were, you're, you're getting back and you're, you were close to the literature again, but I, I sometimes think I was never closer to the literature, whatever the literature was that I was researching than when I was in grad school. And I just had these like 
open-ended evenings where I would just read, read and read and read and read until like five in the morning. Uh, I remember. Um, and now it's like, that's just not going to, not going to happen. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I'm so grateful that they made us do those prelims or comprehensive exams, or however your department called it. Because like what I learned at that time, I still like, when a student comes to talk to me, I'm like, yeah, like <laughs> check out this book. And it's like some classic, you know, but I would never have known, like, if we didn't do that, you know, in grad school. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, the literature, I mean, I don't know, like, if you're talking about IR literature, I, I'm i not more in touch with it after my sabbatical than I was. <laughs> because what I like about IR is what how, what Michael sold me, uh, you know, you can do whatever you want, as long, you know, if you're an IR person. So I've been reading, you know, a lot of history books. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, um, mm. but I'm not going to spend my like sabbatical catching up on whatever IR debates there are. You know, just... mm-hmm. <sighs> well, and that's sometimes that's what conferences are good for. Still, is I, I feel like I can, if if I'm smart enough to look through the program ahead of time, I can find like a roundtable where people are sort of talking about the literature on a topic from different angles and kind of uh, get up to speed uh, in a sort of quick way. Sometimes you're on those roundtables, so I'll just go to whatever roundtable you're on and hear you tell me what I need to learn. Yeah. Well, conferences, I do find conferences to be, I mean, people complain, and I know you, like, got tired of ISA. And, well, you and you and Jana have some theory that I had some, like, traumatic experience at an ISA. I, I, I know what the traumatic experience was, but wearing, wearing the same T-shirt with Hallmark. <laughs> Because you're such a fashionista. Well, you you took the picture and you put it on Facebook, and now like it's everywhere. Somebody put it on Twitter. You put it on Twitter again. It's it's shock therapy. You have to confront your fears now that the worst has happened. I can I can move past it and go back to ISA. (laughs) Yes. So yeah, exactly. Um, no, I do find them to be. Uh, I mean, I like I like I like the I like seeing trends, but I think intellectually they're useful as well. I mean, I often get whether they're workshops or conferences, I get new ideas or think about a new way to frame what I'm working on because it's not just like I do the research for me because I want to learn this stuff. But then writing about it, it's more like how can I get other people interested in it? <laughs> um, and I think sometimes for students, that's the hardest part uh, to figure out because they know why they're interested in it, but they cannot explain why anybody else should care. And conferences are, I think, kind of like the spaces where you figure that out because you find out what other people are talking about. Um, yeah. So, uh, um. So how do you, you mentioned you exercise, how do you sort of recharge or decompress Uh, weekly, daily? What's your, do you have like a routine when it comes to that kind of stuff? Well, I mean, in in the last few years, I've been lifting weights, uh, like heavier and heavier weights, which is very odd. Like I was, I mean, I, I was, I, there were some sports that I did growing up, like, uh, but uh, it wasn't until I came to weightlifting that, like, I discovered that, you know, I, that's not something that I would think that I would enjoy. But 
I guess you should try everything and I really, really enjoy it because like you're, you're always challenging yourself a little bit more. So how did you, how did you get interested in that or how did you discover that? Because I, I have a trainer and we were trying different things like cardio weights and so on. And I ended up like really liking heavy weights. <laughs> like, uh, uh, I get like a real sense of accomplishment from going heavier and heavier. Um, so now I actually, like, I started that with nothing and I have, like, a full set of, like, weights at home now. Um, and the other thing that I've been doing, though not as regularly, which I also love, very surprisingly, that I wouldn't have guessed I would like, is boxing. I, uh, one of my colleagues uh, in, in the department here, Chris Pickerton, who's uh, uh, a scholar of European politics, is um, he's almost like a semi-professional boxer. So he was training a number of us <laughs> because he was looking for a way to exercise. So he, he had to like create his own like sparring partner. Um, so, yeah, so we've been doing that. I mean, we got, you know, interrupted by the pandemic, but uh, <laughs> yeah. And I love boxing. I recommend it to everybody, all academics, because all your frustrations, you know, <laughs> can come out in, uh, yeah. It's, it's how free. So if you're into boxing, like how frequently would you do you spar or is it just training by yourself with a punching no, bag? We just, or? We just spar. I mean, not really like really like you're not trying to knock anybody out, but you could get hit in the face. And yeah, I actually, I don't mind that either. Like, like if, I mean, it would be weird. Like if I showed up with a black eye to a lecture, <laughs> uh, but I mean, like that downside aside, it's like, you know, it's very like, yeah, it's a great sport because you have to kind of think about it or at least I have to because like, it's very like, I'm not to the point where I like feel it's like second nature to me uh, and it's great cardio, but you also like hitting is really fun. Like hitting is really fun. <laughs> I, I never knew. <laughs> this is the problem with being a girl. You don't know hitting is fun. <laughs> <laughs> Getting hit isn't so much fun. I, I can tell you that um, <laughs> growing up with it. All right. So one last question. How do you think you're my first guest in the pandemic sort of era? So how do you think the pandemic is favorite uh, friend you have? I'm the sixth person on this podcast. (laughs) I I now know where I rank with you. No, I would. It's always been if I've been at the same conference (laughs) interviewing people, I haven't been at the same conference as you. And this interview was supposed to happen in Oxford and then that got canceled. Yes. So, um, so how do you think the pandemic is going to change? Will it change the field of international relations? I, I mean, um, I, whether it's in terms of topics or terms of scholarly practices or in terms of your interests or because you even mentioned that you're even revising a little bit of your, your book, um, one of your chapters to sort of uh, dip into um, that. So this book is tentatively called Before Defeat. So it's like a prequel <laughs> to, uh, to my uh, first book. And um, among other things, I mean, it's, it's concerned with the issue of decline um, and possible end of the Western order, but it gets at those questions through like this big reconstruction of Asian history. And one of the points I was making in the book is, which is why I thought I should add pandemics, that we focused in IR so much on 
agentic stuff, like power transition theory. Like we think of what happens in world politics only what, driven by actors, great powers, like or states as actors or actors, like individuals as actors. But so much of what happens is, you know, because I'm like, you know, you, I think you've always known this about me. I'm really <laughs> a structuralist. So uh, like I, I was making the, one of my arguments in the book is uh, like, let's not focus so much on, <laughs> what specific countries are doing or power transition and let's think about orders declining or structures declining through things beyond like anybody's control um, as a discipline. So um, I would hope <laughs> that having a pandemic like this kind of drives a point like that home. Uh, like so much, you know, like Westphalia, like this is one of my chapters about the 17th century. Like the way we talk about Westphalia, it's as if like there are these political actors and there's war, okay, but like then there are political solutions. But in the backdrop to that is the general crisis of the 17th century. It's like the coldest period. Uh, and there you have like these very strange weather patterns. You have plagues. Like you have all sorts of stuff that's happening that's not even at all mentioned like in IR textbooks as like even a background condition, you know. Um, so we're taking like the world as, you know, kind of granted. So, uh, that's what I would hope. And I would think that there would be like, after there was, you know, after 9-11 or the financial crisis, there would be an interest. There will, I'm sure for sure will be a surge of interest in studying pandemics and so on. What I worry about is, you know, this is going to kind of, um, increase the, inequalities uh, in the discipline. And then, you know, what we call maybe the mainstream will find a way to like shoehorn like what's happening into existing paradigms as it happened with like the financial crisis or, you know, terrorism or whatever. Uh, or like a lot of very lightweight stuff will be written uh, and people will get publications out of it, but there won't be like a, deep rethinking. And I think we really need a deep rethinking. Like I think IR is like a very 20th century kind of uh, discipline and it, it, it could and should become something else. Like it could actually become this, you know, meta kind of field that's I think best of UK tradition envisions it as like drawing from economics and sociology and history and all of that and like kind of like the bird's eye view of you know we we could be a discipline that debates these big questions um if we stop trying to like read everything through like the lens of 1982 or whatever like you know so that's what i would hope for well we also have like twitter i merciless, mercilessly like mock rational choice approaches to any of this stuff right now um on twitter i mean i don't do it very often i'm not like like an expert at at doing snark like uh like yelena is but um but i but like anytime someone comes out and talks about like sort of you know the rational choice decision making or or deterrence or whatever it's like that's just not operating anymore i mean in in our country Right now, we have a president that and, you know, 40 percent of his followers that either think this is a hoax or it's a completely overblown and they want to get everybody back to work, you know, and they themselves want to get back to work. And it's because what do these experts know? And it's like, <laughs> there's no way you can put that in a cost benefit analysis and 
and, and I read it with a straight face. I mean, maybe I'm being a little bit too critical, but yeah, but I, I think, mean, but I think you're right. I think you're going to have, you'll still have the same sort of shoe, shoehorning that happened after nine 11. And then it happened after the financial crisis of trying to do these really sort of, you know, mainstream approaches to, to something that really needs to be looked at from a much broader set of angles. I mean, I think at some point it's going to catch up with the discipline. And I think maybe that's, it's this point, but I mean, I was just listening to the Slate politics podcast today and they were saying, and they, they keep saying this since Trump has been elected, like, we've discovered that so many of the things that we thought were like rules are actually like norms, like, you know, like, and I was like, yeah, like, I mean, it's so obvious for someone like me from Turkey, like, of course, a lot of, a lot of what, um, what was happening in American politics were like norms and like, or if, even if something is written down, like whether you obey it or not, that's a norm. Like that's not, it's not, you know, uh, yeah. So I would think, I would hope that what happened in the last four years, like uh, also like ending this, like so they're thinking that there's something like wrong, like with other parts of the world, like they just haven't thought of these like ideas, like, or maybe like, you know, like you're the ones who are like trailing behind, you know, like <laughs> in terms of problems. Uh, anyway, so yeah, one would, one would hope that something good comes out of it. But I do worry about academia, like seeing all these universities with really big endowments and so on, like uh, stop hiring or like, like letting go of adjuncts. Like why? Like they should be actually spending money now, like to, <laughs> like, what good is an endowment like if you're not going to use it in a circumstance like this? I, I completely agree. And, you know, I, I was thinking about the financial crisis and this is that on steroids. I mean, this is the time when people, if they don't have jobs, they need to go back. And this is where you educate your populace, right? They go back to college and they learn things. And that's the time that they can kind of re reset and, and learn about stuff. And when it comes to international relations, I mean, this has to be looked at, you know, from from our angle. I, I will say this, the class that I'm teaching this spring is an intro to IR class. And uh, and the discussions that we're having about the pandemic and then also the 1918 uh, uh, H1N1 pandemic, Spanish flu or whatever, because I've done a little bit of work on that. The, the comparisons, the discussions are really vibrant, but I don't know if that's necessarily going to mean that the students are more interested in international relations or not. It's kind of hard to say, but yeah. I, mean, I think the students, yeah, I mean, this is what's sad about like IR, like we, everywhere, I think, it's one of the biggest majors. Like students are really interested, like they want to learn about the world. They like thinking about these big issues. And then like we like expose them to stupid like paradigm like nobody cares about that stuff like let's get back to the to the big questions you know like yeah um or like methods like you know like why are we so small and we could be so much bigger i'm not saying that stuff isn't important but like i don't know that that's the way to get undergraduates you know interested mm -hmm. uh it's important like that's part of what you do it's important to you it's just not to leave like Centered are disciplined based on the wrong things that are supposed to be secondary issues. Okay, that was my interview with Aisha Zarakal. Dr. Zarakal is at the University of Cambridge. It was a really enjoyable discussion. 
getting to chat with her about her intellectual journey, her background, um, some of the back stories to her work over the years. I've always loved reading everything that she writes, and I'm really looking forward to her next book project, Before Defeat, uh, which will be under review very soon and hopefully be out sometime in the next couple of years. I'm interested in that for my own work on ontological insecurity in the United States and declinism. Um, but, uh, but I'm also just interested in it because I like everything that she writes. Okay. Um, well, I'm really hoping that you enjoyed this because I think I'm going to do a few more of these zoom interviews, uh, for the podcast over the next couple of weeks. They'll probably be close friends like Aisha, uh, just because it'll be dual purpose then kind of keep me connected with some of my friends who I miss very much and can't see at conferences because they're all canceled, but also be scholars and individuals uh, that I, I think you'll find very interesting. Hope you're all doing okay in the pandemic. It's definitely been a uh, a new arrangement for me as a dad, as a department chair, as an instructor, uh, and as a scholar, and I'm still getting used to it. So most importantly, I hope you're all safe and healthy. And until next time, uh, cheers. That's fine. And then I don't, I don't want to ask me more about Yelena. What was she like in grad school? <laughs> I was going to, but she's already like, like um, so yes. she's already really proud that she's like the most downloaded uh, of my of my podcast episodes. Well, this is the way to my, make my podcast more popular. <laughs> to talk more about Yelena, and uh, I would approach her download levels. <laughs> And tease out all of the quotes about Yelena on Twitter so that we could increase the traffic. Okay. <laughs>